Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel. And welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode, blocking and tackling of cybersecurity with special guest John Evans from WWT. John, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for, for having me back. I had a great time last time and looking forward to talking with you again today. Well, today we're expanding things a little bit. Well, kind of. We're actually narrowing things down to cybersecurity because we you teased me last time. You teased me with last time with the shared cybersecurity model on cloud. I said, John, we got to talk about cybersecurity in general. There's so much to un, unpack here. But let, let's first start by, let's talk about just basic cyber hygiene, just the basics. Where do you see a lot of companies that are failing in cyber hygiene? And where do you see companies that are doing cyber hygiene well? And what does that look like? Yeah, so I think that's a great topic and, you know, uh, foundational to all the other cyber stuff that, that, that we do. So it's a, probably a good place to start the conversation. Um, you know, when you think cyber hygiene, um, it's those basic cyber things that we all need to be doing. But unfortunately, uh, not everyone's always doing them. And I think that that's been evidenced by news headlines recently. Um, you know, there's uh, it's you know, there's 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 been an uptick even just in distributed denial of service attacks, something that's should be relatively easy. To, yeah, uh, I mean, to, those uh, have been uh, around forever. We know how to defeat those, right? Yeah, it's in some cloud services, it's clicking a button, you know, it's, it's, um, but I think cyber hygiene, it, it isn't always the cool kind of sexy cybersecurity thing happening. So sometimes it doesn't get the, uh, the, the, you know, it, it, the, the level of port, the level of importance isn't paid on it that maybe it, it uh, should be in a lot of cases. Um, and that's unfortunate. You know, I, I used to be the CISO for the state of Maryland, and I still stay pretty well plugged in with the state CISO community. And I think I can say relatively certain that most attacks follow a common kill chain. So if you think about most attacks hitting state and local government, it's exposed network protocols like exposed RDP, maybe some maybe somebody put uh, some RDP on a box to make it easier for them to get in to do maintenance when they're not, not in the office uh, might've been forgot, forgotten about, but that exposed network protocol is open to, to the internet perhaps, and uh, provides a, a, a real attractive entry point for hackers to get in. Once, once they're in um, bad patching practices are typically a culprit that allows them to be able to gain a foothold, start to move, move laterally, um, you know, you combine that with weak password policies or in weak in enforcement of password policies, um, and then an inability to recover. I, I was involved directly in a very large cyber incident that happened um, in 2019. So people can go back, they can read the headlines, whatever, you can figure it out real, real, real easily what it was probably. But um, it basically, it was a ransomware attack where the affected organization, they basically kind of said, well, we know that we've got the same amount of data in our production environment and in our backup environment, therefore we must be good. But they never tested their backups. They never tested recovering. So uh, poor, poor recovery cap capabilities. Um, 
but yeah, it's a fairly common kill chain. They get in from one of two places mostly, either email, which phishing attacks, training, right? Phishing attacks or exposed net, network protocols. There's very often some poor patch compliance um, uh, type of component to it, and then an inability to uh, recover. So cyber hygiene is still very important. We need to be, I think, putting more emphasis on it uh, you know, in the future. You know, this reminds me of, I, I remember, I played football in high school. I remember we had a horrible, horrible game, and we had all the talent in the world. And the coach said, back to basics, man, back to basics, blocking and tackling. And I, I hated that week. That was a miserable <laughs> week because it was the same thing over and over again until we got it right. So that sounds like if, if we were to say the blocking and tackling of cybersecurity are phishing, right? Right. Making sure that you're training people on phishing. I, we get this at Intel all the time. I get phishing. <laughs> I like to say IT just wants me to take more training because I'm, <laughs> you know, fish bait, right? That's me, right? I'm like, ooh, that looks interesting. Now I'm learning. It takes me some time. But so training your people on phishing is number one. Exposing network protocol. So this is configuring your firewalls appropriately, basically, right? Having something in front of them if you're going to have them. It, yeah. I don't care if it's VPN or, but don't, but don't have it just exposed. And, um, you know, one of the things that, we found was, uh, you know, I'd go into agencies and say, you know, well, we're going to do a full port scan. They would show me port scans of the standard ports and say, well, we don't have anything exposed. And it's like, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> you mean 22 was closed and 80? Yeah. Just and because... 443? Yeah. Those are the ones you closed? <laughs> just because your standard, you know, uh, RDP or net network protocol ports are closed doesn't mean somebody couldn't have put it somewhere else. And we very often would find that that was the case. So uh, security by obscurity doesn't 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 work. work. I, I yeah. like how you said that because a lot of people rely on security by obscurity, but that doesn't it doesn't work. No, not at all. I mean, especially now with all the tools that that hackers have out there, even script script kitties are uh, much more sophisticated probably than they were just a few years ago. There's so many tools out there, so many. Um, scanners available nobody's just looking at the standard ports anymore yeah um another thing that you so the third one was um uh, bad patching policies you're talking about client patching but also in the server in the data centers as well and even out on the edge right oh absolutely absolutely we have you know i i imagine there's a lot of uh organizations that have we were talking about technical debt last time a little bit yeah and yeah. i imagine there's a lot of organizations that have uh, acquired a lot of technical debt in certain systems, and now they're at a point where they can't even update those systems any in, in, in any longer. Yeah, because so, the software's been EOL'd, right? Yeah, so they know that they have to run on this outdated operating system that has all these vulnerabilities associated with it, and it's just a risk that they accept because they don't have or they they don't want to invest the money into updating this the system. It's a you know large undertaking, per, per, perhaps, but. Uh, so they're just sitting out there as known vulnerabilities. So would you say if, and, and, and the other, I want to quickly go over the other ones and I want to kind of the, the weak password policy, totally get it. I'm, I'm horrible at this. If you hack one of my passwords, you can figure out all the other ones guaranteed. It doesn't take long. Um, so power. we need to do a better job at password, but can we get rid of passwords? I know that's a whole nother story, but, and this goes into digital identity 
which we're going to talk about another time. That'd be great. Not <clears throat> I'm I'm hoping that that we can in the not too distant future. I think there's a lot of organizations that are still going to be reluctant to give up their uh, passwords. Um, but I think that a good intermediate step is uh, MFA everything. MFA so, everything. Yeah. yeah. I think MFA everything is a great intermediate step. And then hopefully that will take us to the promised land of, of passwordless. Which would which would be nice, and the last one I think is is really important: the ability to recover. And I love how you said, "Yeah, oh, you back things up. Can you actually use the backup?" <laughs> right. No, well, I've never tested it. I don't know. Right. Yeah, I mean, when this big event happened in 2019, they found they didn't have a lot of their organizational structures, so they had the raw data, but they didn't. yeah, but then yeah, how do yeah, what a nightmare. Yep. Oh, we don't have the right accounts to access that um, that data, or the applications don't have the right. There's there's a whole list of. Would you say if I did these four basic things, how how much of the security issues that I'm having in my organization would go away? I think it depends on the type of organization that you're in. I think if you're talking about, um, and may, maybe it's not four, we, we chose to hit on four. I think of, yeah, those are the four, four of the most important, Yeah, but you know, maybe it's, you know, six or seven things. It's certainly less than 10 probably that we could really come up with a solid list and say, you know, if you're an organization that isn't getting hit with zero day type threats, that isn't getting hit with nation state type attacks, uh, we can stop, you know, I mean, you could probably stop 98, 99% of attacks coming into your organization if you do these half dozen things. Um, wow. That that model doesn't hold true if you're talking about three-letter agencies, um, you know, um, JSON. They better be doing all those things already anyway. <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. That's a good point. I'm sure that they are. Um, but... Uh, there's a lot more resources being thrown at those types of organizations. So uh, that model doesn't hold true for, for those types of organizations. But if you're talking about um, most state, local education, um, small businesses, those types of things, it probably holds pretty, pretty true, I would say. Oh, very, very cool. All right. So you mentioned one thing, um, and it was around patching. Now, this is really interesting because this ties us into our second topic, which is really compliance versus risk. Hmm. And the reason I, I tie this to patching a little bit, because you mentioned before, I may have machines that I can't patch anymore. So now you've got a way to be compliant. I would have to upgrade all those machines and upgrade applications and change my process. Big cost. But what is the real risk involved? So th there's this this push and pull on compliance and risk. Mm -hmm. And if I am completely compliant, does that mean that I'm completely secure then? There's all <laughs> these questions I've got in my in my head. So teach me, oh, great John. <laughs> well, so you brought up an interesting use case for it because that's not one that people typically think of when they think of or when they start discussions on compliance versus risk. Um what you kind of brought up is a use case where compliance might potentially lead you to the better place, which isn't a use case. What I mean by that is if I've got a, a, a system that I'm unable to, to patch, I could make 
a risk-based approach that says, you know what, if something bad happens to the system, um, the cost of that bad thing happening costs me more, or I'm sorry, the cost Cost of that bad thing happening costs me less than what it's going to cost me to actually update the system in order to uh, patch it. Therefore, I might just let that bad thing happen, or I might just run yeah. the risk of, 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 of having that, that, that bad thing happen. Um, in that case, compliant being, you know, I, I would be out of compliance if I try to get into compliance. It may be valid from a risk-based approach, but the more secure thing to do would be to be compliant in that case, which is an odd uh, kind of call out the way that, because most people think of um, a risk-based approach as being more secure than, than compliance. Either way, they're they are certainly different. I think that that example shows shows that they're different. Um, you know, a lot of times. So I have to do both, is what you're telling me. I can't just be. I can't just say I'm going to using a risk based approach, and you can't just say I'm doing a compliance based approach. Well, so if you're if you're a private industry, if you're a small business, you could probably get away with just a risk based approach. Most government organizations can't just rely on a risk-based okay. approach. There are compliance issues or compliant, you know, re- re- regulatory compliance that they have to adhere to. So, um, uh, I think you know, if we have to prioritize one or the other, a risk-based approach is probably the better choice for most cases. Um, even in the case that we were just talking about about not patching, yeah, you'd be more secure with a compliance-based approach. But you could also argue that you've wasted money by using a compliance-based approach. So, for a business, it's probably not the, 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 the best decision. Um, but, um, you know, if you look at, there's, there's been attacks out there released into the wild that were, um, you know, rated very low, um, on the CVE, CVSS scoring. And if those, um, if someone had been using more of a risk-based approach, they would say, you know, we're seeing an uptick in the damage being done by these types of attacks, uh, remote code executable, some of those other factors, and you could use those. You you'd also look at your internal organization and say, you know, what do I have? What what data and how sensitive is that data that is susceptible to this type type of an attack? Do I have mitigating controls in front of it? Therefore, I don't need to prioritize it quite as quite as high. So, um, using that risk based approach will uh, allow you to one um, really spend your money where it needs to be spent and focus your resources where they should be focused, um, ultimately with the goal of making it more secure in the long run. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really about in a lot of, and I, I would say it's mostly really about that prioritization of your resources and your money, being able to make a risk-based uh, decision. So, so why even do compliance? Doesn't everyone, <laughs> And no, it's an honest question. Why, why is government? Because it sounds like maybe compliance might just be a heavy-handed way of doing risk, or someone's already decided this is too risky, so you can't do it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's two reasons. I think one is it's um, it's somewhat of an easy button for a lot of organizations. If organizations gotcha. don't understand how to prioritize risk or how to measure risk it's very difficult. So then you can fall back on a compliance based type of an approach where they've sort of generalized risk for you in some sort of framework. Um, Cause that's really what they're trying to do in a lot of the cases. Like if you look at like the CIS um, where they prioritize the different controls, uh, they're sort of trying to prioritize risk for you, but in a very generalized way, it, um, it's not a one size, it shouldn't be a one size fits all. They're kind of trying to make it do that. But um 
but, but they're lead. I see where you're saying they're leading you down a path to they say are, these yeah. types of things are risky, mm-hmm. right? You need to pay attention to these things and put some kind of risk measure against it. Yeah. So, you know, the other thing is it gives you a sort of a CYA position. If you say, well, I followed these I follow- national <laughs> standards uh, and something bad happens, you can fall back on that when you're trying to explain it to your board of directors or trying to explain it to the governor or whoever you need to to, to explain that, that, that issue to. And then um, thirdly, and probably the biggest reason it's done within government is because you have to do it according to some mandate. So like state, local government, um, if you want your money from CMS to pay for your billion dollar Medicaid system, uh, you have to be compliant with MARS-E. If you're not, then you may not get your, 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 your funding. And that's a huge amount of IT funding coming into the States. So, um, Gotcha. Well, in general, do you, do you believe that some of these, uh, security frameworks or standards, do they help the industry as a whole or do you see them as a crutch that, Oh, I just did the compliance and that's good enough. Where, where are you seeing that fitting? Yeah, I think um, I, there's a little bit of the crutch mentality. I think there, you know, if you look at, you know, saying it's a way to kind of cover yourself, uh, that 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 goes back to the kind of crutch mentality, I think. And then I think there's a little bit of, um, I don't want to call it laziness, but a little bit of, you know, this is good enough. I do this. I don't have to spend the time doing all of my risk evaluations and really figuring things out for what needs to be done. I can just kind of follow this, 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 this playbook. Um, so yeah, I, I would say, I think in some ways it is a bit of a crutch having, having some of the compliance. Let's say that I'm a small municipality going to a compliance framework may be a good start for me because I don't, I can't afford a CISO, right? I just have this, you know, the sysadmin that says he likes security. I can point him in this direction and say, there is a good starting point for you, right? I mean, they're not all bad. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, another thing to consider and. I actually do this for, um, I have a call later today, or I think I moved to, I think I got moved to tomorrow actually. But, um, um, so through WWT and I, this isn't, this wasn't planned, not trying to <laughs> create a pitch here, but, um, you know, I do virtual CISO types of engagements. Um, so there's a, a county I'm meeting with this week, um, to talk to them about, uh, or we're, we're kicking off the, uh, engagement actually. So, you know, the contract's been signed and everything. So, um, but I am, we actually do some, some VCSO work. I do some d- directly with some uh, different customers. So I, I would say, um, you know, if you don't have the staff on hand, it doesn't have to be hundreds of thousands of dollars either to get some part of part-time of a virtual CISO um, who will be able to help walk you through sort of some of these risk-based and prioritization of, of activities. Um, you know, so, I mean, I would say that that's a, a feasible path maybe for some of these municipalities also to uh, kind of take. Great. All right. Let's talk a little bit. Let's extend this risk base um, to zero trust. Cause all that's all the buzz right now. Zero trust this zero trust that my product does zero trust. My, 
I have a lot of ideas around this and uh, strong opinions about zero trust philosophy and principles, which I think is more important than zero trust architecture. And you and I talked about this before, and that's the same. But really, when you look at zero trust, you're really looking at level of assurance versus level of risk as well. That's a great way to uh, say it. Um, there's a, you, you need to know the level of risk with somebody or with, a, with, with access to a particular system or piece of data. You need to understand what the risk could be with granting access to that. If, you know, could it be disclosed or altered? Um, so you need to understand the risk. And then you need to have a commensurate level of assurance that uh, what's trying to access, the, the person or system trying to access that, that, that data uh, is who they say they are and they're supposed to have access. So it's exactly what you just said. It's risk of accessing something and assurance that I know, know who that other person or entity really is. Entity is and that they're supposed to have access to it. Yeah. So, so would you say that's it in zero trust? Zero trust is high level of assurance um, mitigated by risk, uh, mitigated, mitigates risk. That's a, yeah. I mean, at, at the heart of zero trust, that's, that's what zero, that, I mean, that's really sort of what it is. It's that uh, security decision point architecture that says, uh, based on the level of risk associated with accessing this thing, I am going to put more stringent controls or more stringently evaluate, make sure that I, I have a higher level of assurance that this entity is who they say they are and that they're supposed to be accessing this uh, data. So uh, people talk about zero trust and I think they get, you know, I, I, I think it's a term that some people are a little overwhelmed by uh, at times, but at the, at the heart of it, that's really all, all it is. So if we think practically, you know, if, um, if I've got somebody who's trying to to get in to see, you know, rainfall levels, I, I don't need to verify that with much level of, you know, very high level of assurance that person is who they say they are, that they're supposed to have access to that data. But if it's my crown jewels, I need to make sure that there's some additional controls put on that to really make sure that this person uh, is who they say they are and that they're supposed to have access. I really like how you describe that because... When I first heard about zero trust, I thought, oh, they're going to lock everything down. And everything's going to have temporal access. I mean, I only have access for a short period of time and high assurance on everything. And I said, this is going to be ridiculous because if I do want to find out how much it rained last night, they have to authenticate who I am and I can only look for 30 seconds. I mean, that's just not reasonable. So I love how you said that. It is, it's not. I don't trust anyone all the time. It's I'm weighing that assurance with the risk involved in accessing an asset or data. I'm, and you're the only one I've heard really talk about it that way. Well, I, so you should write a book, John. I'm just okay. saying. <laughs> you made it so easy to to understand, frankly. Well, thank you. I, I try to, um, that's, uh, you know, you're not always going to have the luxury of being able to explain it to people like yourself who are, you know, very knowledgeable, very educated in the technology. If that's the philosophy, the principles, right? Matching the level of assurance with the level of risk. How about implementing that? Is that hard? Uh, are there tools that I can just use today that let me do that effectively? 
or does this mean a completely re-architecture of the way that I do access management and the way that I do everything that I've been doing for 30 years, 40 years even? Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack in that, in that question. I'm going to sort of try to take it piece by piece. We'll stay at a pretty high level because there's a lot of depth, a lot of places you can go. That was a, a big quest question. Um, to answer sort of, is it hard? I mean, it can be. I think it depends on the level of maturity of your organization. One of, we talked about um, the risk associated with accessing a piece of data as, a, as an example. Um, if, if my organization doesn't know what data I have out there, and if I can't categorize that data, if I can't assign a risk scoring basically to that data, um, then it can yeah, be real, it can be real hard because like, I know, uh, a pretty mature federal government organization, um, talking to their C CTO, they spent over two years just making sure that they had their data identified, classified, tagged cor cor correctly before they moved on, um, to any sort of the, de the decision point, um, type of architecture. So, um, it so it can... sounds like the first thing you have to do is identify your data and classify it. That sounds like that's the first, one of the first steps. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of them. You know, identity and data are probably the two big things that you want to start, start off with. If you don't have a good handle on your identities and you don't have a good handle on your data, uh, you can run those tracks in parallel and you probably should because both of those can take quite a, quite a bit of time to, to get them into a place to really move you to, towards zero, zero trust. The other thing I would say is, um, maybe pick a, a, a piece of your organization. Don't try to boil the ocean. Don't do everything all at once. Yeah. Maybe pick a piece of it and work through it there, get some muscle memory work, working through it there, and then start kind of scaling that out to other pieces of, of your organization. It's interesting. You threw in identity again. Yeah, no, That's, identity. Um, yeah, this is a big topic then. I digital identity and. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, it's interesting too. So I'm going to, um, transition if, if it's okay with, with, with you. Um, uh, so digital identity, you mentioned that digital identity, if you think about, um, you know, digital identity, we have identity proofing, uh, making sure that this person is who they say they are. Um, you know, we're getting into more sophisticated ways of uh, doing that. Um, but if we think about how this all plays out in the future, move, move it moving forward, I think our identities are going to be uh, almost based on our, our, our transactions, I should say, uh, in the real world are going to be based on the zero trust type of an approach. So as a, for instance, if I need to, uh, or, you know, if, if, if John is transferring $10,000, let's say out of his bank account to an offshore account somewhere, um, my my bank should make real certain sure, yeah. that this is me, you know, trying to make that make right. that transaction, just as if someone's trying to access some very sensitive, high risk piece of, of uh, information. Whereas if I'm going to the store and buying a, a dollar cup of coffee, you may not need the same level of assurance that that, you know, it's actually John who's who's making this uh, tra tra transaction. Um, the impact, the risk associated with it is much lower in those cases. So uh, I think we're going to see a lot of um, a lot of the principles that we're learning and or that we're developing around zero trust, making their way into our everyday lives, everyday lives. as we start adopting more of the of the uh, digital identity type of 
um, type type of framework. You know, something else just popped into my head. It, it's not just the one event either that you have to be able to identify. And this is where I think we're going to start seeing some interesting plays in AI and access over over time. If Darren's acts, if Darren buys coffee every day mm-hmm. at a certain place, which I don't drink coffee, so that should raise red alarms everywhere. <laughs> but um, and we already see this with uh, credit card transactions. If I mm-hmm. do something outside of the ordinary of my normal buying patterns, they flag it. Right. Yeah. We should see the same sorts of things when I'm accessing data as well inside uh, at, at different classification levels. Because Absolutely. I think you and I both know I can gather a bunch of data from unclassified areas and one piece of data from classified area and create top secret data yep. And, yep. and have situational awareness that no one else would have, which would make me a threat in, in that case. Absolutely. So I, I think I think we're going to see an extension to zero trust to AI. I don't know what you would call it. But it's it's almost like what is your ax what is your zero trust access over time, mm-hmm. and are you is that developing some kind of a a, a threat? Um, I, I mean, user behavioral analytics UBA is hugely important when you're talking about the concept of zero trust, and um, you know that that's that's part of what you're talking about there is I yeah think absolutely some of, that, some of those UBA principles if if the system is keeping track and it notices that John Hunt and Peck's, you know, 20 words per, 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 per minute in the, in the system. And he's, that's been pretty steady over the course of his, of his tenure there. And all of a sudden he's typing a hundred words per minute. Yeah. I'm typing 160 words, words, words a minute. And I'm trying to access one of the most sensitive things that my account has access to. Uh, you know, that, that, that might, oh, that's a, that's, that's a really good point. Flag. That's a really good point. Hey, John, this has been absolutely wonderful. Very enlightening. Uh, thank you again for coming on the show. And of course, we've got to talk about digital identity. So you you got to come back. Why are you going to come back for me? I would love to. I would love to. I've had a great right. time talking with you both times now. Um, digital identity is something that uh, um, I'm is n- near and dear to me. It's something I've been, um, you know, um, learning more and more about. Uh, so I would love to come in and talk talk with you more about that. Oh, that sounds great. Thanks again, John. And I can't wait to talk to you again. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.org. Until next time, go out and do something wonderful.